0: This is Teaching the Teacher, Episode 3. I don't take it for granted for one minute that I was able to teach a lot of interesting people during my career. I'm really happy to be able to share the privilege of getting to know some of these folks with you in this podcast series. Today, I'm going to learn all about what it's like to be a medical student from Jad Rafa talking to me from McGill University in Montreal. If you thought getting into medical school was the challenge, well, and let's face it, it is, hang on until you hear what happens after you finish. I talked to Jad as he was kind of nervously applying to become what they call a resident in plastic surgery. Plastic surgery is one of the most competitive specializations there is. Hello. Hi, hi. Hi.
1: How are you? Good. Good. Let me try to get my picture up here.
0: Great. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe. Oh, hello. Oh, my goodness. Hello. How's it going? All grown up. Oh, my, yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Long
1: time no see.
0: Oh, I'm just so thrilled to talk to you.
1: Every year, there's 1,200 medical students who graduate from Canada, right? 1200. So these are 1200 new doctors, uh, every year, if I'm not mistaken, there's about 17 or 18 spots, uh, to become a plastic surgeon in Canada. Okay. So you are competing with 1200 medical students, but these are the, you know, who are, who are already people who were selected amongst thousands of people to go into medical school. You have to prepare yourself as much as possible. To to sort of meet the expectations that people have if you're trying to go for one of the most competitive specialties. So for me, a big lesson that I learned in medical school. So, you know, in undergrad, I was doing everything, right? I was class vice president. I was yeah, doing research. That. I was doing my honors degree. I was I was doing everything. Any opportunity that came my way, I was able to do it and I did it well. When I got into medical school, I had the same you know, cause it's habit, right? It's it's uh, it's the way you've sort of been trained. And I, w- I was also doing everything. I was class president my first year of medical school. I uh, was doing my research. I was also getting like 95 and 96, I was on the Dean's honor list in, in my first year of medical school. But I realized that I can't like, just because you have all these opportunities doesn't mean you should do all of them. Doesn't mean it's best for you and your career to do all of them. So. It came a point and, I, and this is a lesson that i'm learning now the more i progress in my like academic career and like medical career is that there's only so many hours in the day right yeah. and you have to be very selective with what it is that you're going to be doing so that it is giving you the professional development that you need for your career goals as well as being smart in meeting certain requirements that you know are set uh, so that it gets you where you ultimately want to go. So for me to continue being class president for the next three years of medical school and that consuming four hours a day, every single day was was going to take me somewhere, but it was a little bit more tangential to where, where I was trying to go, which was become an academic, plastic and surgeon, right? Yeah, uh, I noticed
0: and, on your LinkedIn, I said to myself, ah, he stayed, looks like he stayed involved with sort of an advisory advocacy role, but he backed right. up. That must have been a strategic decision. And I think exactly. probably good for
1: your health too. Mrs. that was probably one of the most difficult decisions I've ever had to make. Uh, was because uh, it wasn't stepping down, it was not running again. And the way tradition has it in, in McGill is whoever is class president in first year of medical school, almost every single year, no one runs against them to go for presidency of the entire medical student society which is all four years of medical school and you know that's that's quite a big distinction you know like I you know I, I come from a little village in, in Lebanon Mrs. Devitt you know like never in my wildest dreams did I ever think that I would be you know even sitting here and talking to you about like the you know the relative I don't know if I would call it a successful career but like You know, how what I've done so far in the past couple years, and I I hope it's successful, and I hope I could go even farther, right? I'm nowhere near where I want to be, but um, the very idea that I've come from that, and now I've come to a position where I could be president of my class at McGill, the best medical school in Canada, and I could be president of the entire medical school itself, all four years, and to not take it, right? And to, to take a step back and to say... I don't think that's what's best. Right. I I think that I could work just as hard, but in something different that is going to take me closer to my goals. And that's going to give me what I need to develop further into the what I want to become, which is, you know, an academic, you know, surgeon scientist. And to me, that that was probably one of the biggest, um, you know, the hardest decisions I've ever had to make for sure.
0: I'm sure it was. And, you know, I, I, back in the day uh, in high school, I watched all of you people and and not just you, but lots of other um, people in our, in our, in our enriched group Mm -hmm. having a really hard time saying no to things. Exactly. Because you have so much energy, such a sense of service and you can do it. You, You know, you can do it.
1: Exactly. So people
0: just keep going and going. So that's, I'm really impressed with your wisdom.
1: Just Just because you can, doesn't mean you should. That's, um, you know, that's one of the things that I learned. And, you know, I, similar thing, you know, when I was, I I did a master's degree, I deferred, so I got into medical school and I deferred my medical school to do a master's. Uh, So I already had my spot in medicine and I almost had to beg them to let me take a year off and to get a two-year master's in a year which was which I thought was a really good opportunity for me and uh when I was in there I
0: thought you did that master's because you didn't get into med school
1: no I got in and I deferred my medical school in fact my girlfriend almost killed me because her and I got into medical school together we were going to be in the same class and I uh, decided to to defer because I got a really big grant from the uh from the government to do that research and it just seemed silly, not like I have my spot in medical school. It's guaranteed. I have this paper, this, this project that I could finish up in a year. I could get a master's degree out of it. Instead of doing two years, I could get one. And I got this really prestigious grant. Um, but anyways, so while I was doing my master's, my, my supervisor offered me to do two extra years. And he would give me a PhD because I had the data, like I was on track. And again, it was one of these things where I, you know, uh, you know, just because you can doesn't mean you should. And at that time, I wasn't sure that, you know, delaying medical school for another two years, you know, was uh, was the best uh, idea. And I just wanted to, you know, just hop into this you know, new world of, of uh, clinical work and just learn the other side of things. Because when you do research, you you don't really know how it can be applied right until you you you. Uh, you, you, you know, you surround yourself by people in a clinical setting and see how, you know, this stuff is, how medicine is being practiced, right?
0: Well, and maybe you don't even know at this point whether you're going to like it.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: being with humans.
1: Exactly, exactly, exactly.
0: Now, exactly. where are you at now? D- d- are, have you, have you started the specialty? Did you-
1: no, so I actually just submitted my application on Monday, believe it or not, uh, which was, you uh, little bit of a sort of stressful process it's it's you know very cumbersome and it's uh um so so that that's that's done and that's out of the way and um i write my boards to to sort of be able to to practice medicine in may and then in july i begin residency so we'll find out now based on this application process where i'm gonna end up so i i only applied to plastic surgery um i'm really interested in pediatric plastic surgery. So sort of uh, like pediatric craniofacial surgery, cleft lips and palates, craniosynostosis. Um, Obviously there's so much left of the field for me to explore. Like there's no way I can say that's what I'm gonna be because I have another five years to explore it. But that's what I'm being, what I'm drawn to at the moment. And I think that it's a perfect sort of hybrid of uh, you know being able to combine you know clinical care with with research right because there's a lot of research to be done and that kind of stuff and you're you're working with kids you know and and you know there's this really cool quote that uh i actually use in my personal statements applying to programs where it says that when you save a child you don't just save a life you save a lifetime right and that that's something pretty significant you know to think that you can impact somebody's life uh, from very early on so that they can have a normal life for the rest of their life. One that they deserve, mm-hmm. you know, is something that appeals to me. So so that's sort of what I'm being, what I'm drawn to at the moment, but- I have a cheeky who, who question.
0: Why is plastic yeah. surgery the specialization that's the most competitive?
1: Um, that's, that's actually a good question. I think objective, I mean, I, I can't be objective in saying this because obviously I'm, I'm very drawn to the field. But I, I truly think it's, it's the most interesting specialty ever, right? So you, you get to operate from head to toe, first of all. No other surgeons do that, right? Like general surgeons, for example, you know, operate in the abdomen mostly, you know? The fact that you're able to operate everywhere in the body is, is incredible. In plastic surgery as well, the whole field is built off of innovation. It's a relatively young field in you. So there's a lot that you can contribute to the field and you can sort of, you can take with and go uh, is, is what draws me to it. But why do people like plastic surgery? I I generally think it's, it's one of the coolest specialties, you know, um, in the world. And I think people recognize that and everybody wants to do it. The cliche
0: is I'm sure somebody on the outside would say, oh yeah, plastic surgeons can make a ton of money fixing. Yeah. uh,
1: Yeah. Facelifts and that (laughs) kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and that is true. And, and I mean, but, but the thing is, I genuinely believe that the way the system is sort of set up now and how they screen and and get applicants is it's very easy for people who want that to be identified and weeded out, you know, because nobody wants that, right? Like, I mean, um, like if if people truly are going into this field and are dedicating five years of their life just to, to, to make more money, you know, that People don't want you in their program because why would I recruit you as somebody who's going to do all of that and then leave? Did you just apply to McGill or did you apply to U of T as well? No, I applied everywhere across Canada. It's incredibly competitive, right? right? Yeah. So uh, how and, and the way it works is it's a match. So you, you, you apply to all these schools, you interview. It's over Zoom this year because of the pandemic. And then schools rank. So they're like, OK, you know, I want John Uh, you know, I have two spots, so I'm going to rank all these 10 applicants in order. John is first, so-and-so is second, Jad is third, so-and-so is fourth, whatever. And then we all rank, the applicants rank the schools. And there's an algorithm that matches people with the best possible outcome for everybody, you know? But with that being said, there's a lot of people who might not match anywhere just because there's not enough spots. And So there's no real way for you to know. It's not like, you know, U of T gives you an offer like Jad, you can come here. If you want, you take it. You don't know. It's just on a certain day on April 20th at noon, we're going to log in and we're going to say, Jad, you're going to McGill or Jad, you're going to U of T or Jad, you're going to Dalhousie. You know, it's like, okay, well here go the next five years, right? (laughs) Go The next five years. Oh my God. Exactly. But it's an adventure, Um, you know, and you have to take it day by day and, uh, you just have to embrace it, almost. Yeah. For what wow. It is. Wow.
0: Yeah. And and just su- such hard work. Oh my gosh, the residency is the whole. Yeah, yeah. That's the whole thing. What I find interesting that I'm hearing is that you really feel this um, hunger to to be involved in research. That yeah. You want the mix.
1: Yeah. I think it gives you a good sort of opportunity to to not get bored. You know. Um, so you know, with research, especially like the stuff that I was doing in my master's, I remember, you know, I was like a 20 year old, 21 year old, uh, I forget how old I was, and I was going to work. I'm like, the stuff that I know about this one thing that we're studying, no one else in the world knows. That's pretty exciting. You know? Yeah. Not to say that it's going to change, you know, with, you know, medical practice, like most of the basic science research that is conducted nowadays doesn't really amount to anything clinically significant. But it's, it's really cool and satisfying the sort of intellectual curiosity that you have and in complementing, you know, uh, your ability to, to, to care for patients. And I think that it gives you sort of the intellectual stimulation you need to, to, to know that you're always sharp and you're always on top of it and you're doing something that may contribute your field and may contribute the practice of medicine. That's the hope, right? Like, I don't think I've done anything yet that, that comes close to that, right? But I, but my hope is that after my career is done and I'm reflecting upon is it, it's like, you know what, I did this one thing or I was involved in this one thing once and this caused for a change, you know? And that things are done this way now because of my contribution. And that's something really cool, you know, to, to be remembered for. And and, and that's really what, what sort of drives me. So I, yeah, research is a big part of my, you know, professional identity, let's say, and my, uh, you know, my aspirations, uh, yeah.
0: Can you tell yeah. me a little bit about your research for your master's?
1: What we studied was, um, so, so there's this, this really bad disorder. So it's called the multiple endocrine neoplasia disorder. So it's this really, um, you know, horrible disease where people are born with one defective mutation of a particular gene, Right. And at some point in their life, the other gene becomes mutated, okay? And then they start getting tumors in endocrine tissues. So in their parotid, their parathyroids, their pancreas, and it's really horrible. So the gene that gets mutated uh, encodes a protein, which is called menin. And that's always been known that this is what causes that, you know, that disorder. So we discovered that that particular tumor suppressor, this gene, is expressed in bone. So we're like, okay, well, let's see what's up with that, you know? So we knocked it out and we found that these mice would get osteoporosis. Interesting. We overexpressed it. We sort of like cranked it up its, it's activity. And we found that these mice are developing like such strong bones, like such thick, strong bones. So we basically, tr- my, my role in my project was to characterize the cellular function and the phenotype that arises as a result of the function of this protein, so that maybe we could use it as a better drug target for osteoporosis. And in short, uh, so it was a lot of sort of work on mice. We, we did some fancy, you know, genetic stuff, a lot of fancy experiments, you know, I was using machines to, to do scans that were like $1.5 million machines, you know, to, to scan like a mouse bone, you know, it's incredible, right? Oh my uh,
0: God.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 $1.5 million machines, like to scan a mouse bone. Uh, but it was obviously like very high resolution and that kind of stuff. Uh, but yeah, so in short, we, we basically tried to find a new therapeutic target for osteoporosis. Um, and we, yeah. And and that's basically it. Unfortunately, my supervisor, uh, a year after my master's passed away, which, uh, which was really tough for the project and the continuity of it. Uh, but we're doing what we can, and somebody else has taken up the project, another uh, supervisor, and you know we're we're doing what we can with it.
0: Uh, so are you still working, researching? It looks from spying on you on uh, uh, on LinkedIn, you, it, yeah. a lot of your work seems to be around bone.
1: Yeah. So my basic science research is is in bone. Uh, and we sort of yeah. So we had a recent paper uh, last year where we did sort of biomechanical analysis on bones, which was which was really uh, really cool. Uh, it was like a new technique that no one's you know done before. Yeah, I was wondering
0: what the heck that meant.
1: Yeah, it's 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 really like it's it's really really complex, and it's it's really like at the nano scale. Like we're we're going into like the nanometer scales, and we're characterizing sort of the elasticity of bone and different kinds of bone within an actual femur, so there's different sites and there's cortical bone and trabecular bone and it's like in this axis versus that axis. So we basically just, um, you know, really, really defined how bone behaves at that scale, at the nano scale, so that this can, you know, set us up to do further studies in the future. Uh, so so that, was, that was one of the, but, but really most of my work recently has been on clinical research uh, in, in plastic surgery uh, and in surgical simulation and education, that's, that's probably one of my biggest interests. Uh,
0: I, in I noticed that. So what is that surgical simulation? Is that, um, yeah. is that people, somebody wearing a HoloLens and operating in another place? Is, is, sort is kind, of, kind of thing, what, sort tell of. Tell me about what this is. I was really curious. S-
1: sort of. Yeah. So, so basically the classic way in which surgery has been taught to people is called the Halstedian approach. His name was Halstead, I think he was, uh, he was a famous surgeon. And his, you know, he had a famous quote, which was see one, do one, teach one. That's how people learn surgery is, you know, somebody like my supervisors who once were trainees saw it, they did it, now they know it and they teach it to me. And then now I see it, I do it and I teach it, right? But, you know, when you're talking about surgery in people's bodies, right? you don't really want to go into an operation where you're like, okay, this is the guy's he's seen it and it's his first time doing it and he's doing it on me, you know? So it works, you know, Surgeons yeah, I got, get that. right. And like, it works because obviously it's supervised. Obviously the surgeon is right over and you know, is supervising everything and says, no, don't do that. I'm going to take over. Like, obviously it's safe. Right. But there may be a better way to do it. Right. And, and that's when uh, the concept of competency-based surgical education has emerged. And that's something being adopted across Canada, where you're, you're basically taught specific competencies. Like, Jad will, you know, dissect the nerve today. And that's it. That's the only thing he will do. And once I pass that, I can do the next thing. So it's sort of like checkpoints. And to do that, what we could do is we can create simulators that can help me practice at home and I can meet some of these checkpoints at home. So I don't need to practice something that on a patient that can actually be practiced not on a patient. Oh, right. Wow. And if I can achieve that competency, that will translate to a patient at some point, then why do that practice on a patient in the first place? Right? I like the sounds of that. Right. <laughs> Just okay. it's a labor. Right? Exactly. So, uh, we, you know, I I was very lucky to be to be involved with a few of these projects and the the team at McGill, the McGill Plastic Surgery team really has been, you know, uh, one of the sort of the pushing sort of the frontiers on on simulation based surgical education, as well as U of T. They've done some incredible work on that as well. So we developed uh, a a few simulators uh, and we did some research on a few simulators. And one of the latest ones was to teach plastic surgery residents how to reconstruct facial defects after cancers are removed. And we basically developed like an app on an iPad that teaches you what you need to do so that when you go on a patient, you know how to design the flaps. You know what you got to do. You don't have to learn it on a patient, you know? Wow. So is it virtual reality or is it? Some of it is virtual reality. Some simulators can be bench top. So uh, we, we published a paper a couple years ago uh, where we, um, so microsurgery is, is like a surgery on on the micro scale, obviously under microscopes, that connects two blood vessels together or repairs a you know, cut blood vessels or whatnot. So as you can imagine, it's very delicate work. And like for somebody like me, if, if I, I'm lucky to, to match into plastic surgery next year to learn it, I'm probably not going to learn it on a patient again, right? It's so delicate. So there's actually prosthetic simulators, silicone tubes that are the exact same thing and you can just get your own microscope at home like a science microscope and cut the tube in half and practice these skills and we showed that you know these represent a very promising uh sort of adjunct and may possibly replace training on animals until so that we can you know get the competencies we need to, to operate on patients. So, so simulation can be anything. It can be virtual reality. It can be digital on like an iPad. It can, if it needs to be more mechanical and it's more fine motor skills, then it's sometimes bench top simulators that are you know, prosthetic materials. So it's, it's really this exciting field that um, I'm very, very interested in. And, and I think that I would focus a lot of my research on in uh, residency if, uh, if, if I'm able to continue
0: wow that's so interesting you know so many students say i want to be a doctor Mm -hmm. and so few people get into med school and and uh and you know high school kids are kind of like they can't even necessarily see another idea other than you know doctor lawyer engineer um do you have advice i mean
1: you're
0: you you did you did it
1: you know to um to, to put it briefly you know, you have to know this, that there's a lot of smart people out there. There's a lot of talented people, you know, everybody in that, you know, in, in our classes, you know, to, not to use the, the, the G word, the, the gifted word, but um, in our enriched classes, everybody had the potential to, to, to do it, you know, if they set their mind to it, right? Um, but I think what defines people who end up making it and, and not, I think is, is genuinely work ethic. Um, especially for people, Mrs. Devitt, who, like me, have, have not come from a position of privilege, you know? Like, I'm the first guy in my family to go to university, to go to university, you know? So to be able, like, like I told you, you know, to, to be here in McGill, to have been class president, to, these are all things that, honestly, like, I, sometimes I can't even believe it. Like, my life now is what used to be my wildest dreams, you know, and I still have a long way to go. And so, especially if you're not coming from a position of privilege, what's, it's going to set you apart is your work ethic, you know, and you just have to have the discipline and you just have to seek opportunities and you have to think in a way that is different from everybody else around you, you know, and people who come from a position of privilege are not, you know, bad people and they're not getting ahead because they're, you know, they're doing things that are wrong or unethical, but it certainly helps, you know, if you have a sibling in medicine, they're going to guide you the right way. Just, just that You know, advice and that insight, and having somebody hold your hand and don't do this, do that, or talk to this person, don't talk to that person, that in and of itself is beneficial to your advancement, right? So, to come from a place where you have none of that, right, and you have to sort of figure out on your own is still possible, but you just have to work harder, right? And I think that that's why, if you just have that work ethic and that sense of being proactive and, and trying to think in a different way, I think that's gonna give you the advantage that you need regardless, whether you come from a position of privilege or not, that it's gonna let you sort of compete at this stage.
0: Um, I'm gonna, I, I really will let you go, but I'm just thinking, I, here I'm talking to you and I'm thinking, I I don't wanna to be too maudlin, but is your job heartbreaking a certain amount? Like, how, how have you coped with all of that? Like, I'm thinking, yeah. so you you're, you do rounds and you're,
1: yeah. yeah. Um, I think it's part of your, your development as, you know, as, a, as somebody who's about to become a physician and ultimately a physician, um, to, to sort of come to peace with that stuff. I remember in, in the first year, in my first year of medical school, this stuff used to hit me hard, Mrs. Devon, you know, like I used to see, it, you know, be in a clinic and seeing a patient, you know, diagnosed with prostate cancer and they're getting sort of like an abdomen ultrasound to see if there's any metastases because, and, and there were, you know? And, and just like looking at that person and just knowing like, this is a person who is gonna die soon, you know? And, and it was really, really difficult on me to sort of deal with these emotions, right? Because, you know, to be a doctor, you need to have empathy, you need to have compassion. But also if you don't know how to deal with these emotions and your empathy and compassion destroy you, right? Then you're also not being a doctor, right? You're not being a good doctor. Um, so this was something that, and honestly, I I don't know how it, it, I just sort of, you know, learned to deal with these things a little bit better, but it certainly, um, it certainly hit me hard the first two years of medical school. And after that, I, I became better at it, you know, like today, you know, I I was dissecting cadavers today earlier on the day. And like, I remember my first day of my first year of medical school, when we saw him like, this is a dead person. Like, and, and, you know, it still hits you. Like it's, and like who was this person's family like how did they die like what you know and now you just there are certain things that are easier sort of to deal with and set aside and just focus on what you need to do and I think that um just knowing that you you're doing what you what you can to help people even if they're in a bad situation I think is part of the the piece that you can get out of it right because yeah this person is dying you know and But at least I'm doing something to help, you know, and and I think that this gives you a little bit of, you know, uh, you know, it's sort of a coping mechanism, I think, to to, to think about the positives that you're doing to help that person. But it's not always easy. I mean, even now, a couple, I think it was a month ago, uh, you know, I I was in a pediatric plastic surgery rotation and there was a patient who had a horrible sarcoma, you know, and, you know, and she was 14 years old and the things she's going through the chemo the radiation and it breaks your heart you know so it's it's not it's not easy it's it's even till now there's uh there's times where you know my my emotions and my you know my human component get the best of me but i think that it's a balance because i think if you shut all of that off and don't let yourself have these emotions then you're going to become you're gonna lose that empathy and compassion that you need, right, in, in medicine and your purpose in life, right? I, which I think is to help people. So it, do it's a balance. they give you a
0: certain amount of support? Is it part of your education to help you balance that? Because if they just say stiff upper lip and repress it,
1: then yeah, they probably, no, I think so, they
0: used to do
1: that. Yeah, for, for sure, job. so, so McGill, McGill honestly has, uh, has this great program. It, it, it's, it's called the whole person care program. And it's this physician who used to be a—I uh, think he was a nephrologist—and then he realized that there's a there's a better sort of there's a bigger calling for him, which is to address this like the the self of a physician. You know what it means to to, to heal as opposed to treat patients. You know what I mean? This this other notion, right, of of, of medical practice. And he developed this program at McGill, which is the whole person care program, which incorporates several aspects of and different coping strategies. So we had this course about mindfulness and medical practice. So we'd go in and we would meditate and we would, you know, share stories that were tough. And we would talk about, you know, difficult patient encounters. And, you know, just to sort of show us that it's okay to have these thoughts, these things are normal. And the best way to deal with it is to dive right into it, you know, explore these emotions. Why am I feeling this way? Uh, it's okay to feel this way. It's normal, it's human. Um, here's how I can cope with it. So certainly McGill uh, has done a lot, I think. Uh, and, and I honestly think we're very fortunate to, to be training at McGill who has embraced, you know, um, this aspect of, of medical education. Because I think it's important. And because you're human beings. We're human beings. And let me tell you, Ms. David, the hardest part of medical school is not the studying. It's not the it's not the stuff you need to learn. You know? That's really tough also, but it's doable. The hardest part of medical school is the emotional um, sort of the, is, is mustering up and keeping your emotional resilience. I think that that's, if if I were to put it in, in one, in one sentence, because, you know, there's so much going on, there's so much stress, there's so much, you know, there's stuff going on in your personal life. Everybody's got stuff going on in their personal life. You know, let me tell you, you know, I have a family, I have, you know, uh, you know, uh, parents, I have parents who have health conditions, I have grandparents, you know what I mean? So, These are things that are always in the back of your mind and you also go into work and you got to put on, you know, your, your, be your best self and treat these patients and things don't always go well at work and you got to cope with that. And then you got to go home and study and you have this exam and it's, it's all of this, the emotional stress, I think of medical school is the hardest part of it. Um, And you get better. And I think that sometimes you have to be put in a vulnerable and challenging position to develop the skills that you need. I think to, to to deal with things like that, and that applies for, you know, uh, dealing with patients who are suffering and seeing them suffer in front of you and coming to peace with that, and also, you know, with other parts of your life and dealing with stress and dealing with challenges.
0: And like so, wow. Yeah. This has been so interesting, Chad. <laughs> but the one thing I am um, asking everybody at the end mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. What is the next thing you want to learn? Now I think you've kind of told me that, but
1: <laughs> so here's the thing. So again, there's all of this stuff, it's sort of academically and in my career that I want to, you know, keep doing and, and move forward with. And there's so much to learn in medicine, Mrs. Debbett. It's it's crazy. Like the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And it's incredible, right? And people who tell you they know everything are people who know nothing. You know, that's something that I've learned. Um, but aside from everything that I have to learn in, in that and in, you know in, in my field and whatnot, I I I want it like personally, I I want to learn more about history. I want to learn more about uh you know the people who were on this earth before us who have shaped, you know, the course of history that brought us today. You know, we're sort of just glued on our iPhones and just in this sort of routine of wake up, go to work, come home, sleep. And you're just sort of sheltered from all of that. And you know, during my time, you know, in my time on this earth, like I I do want to learn more about this stuff because I find like that is, that is so interesting, you know, and I, I, it's not something that I want to sort of overlook or or have, you know, pass me by and, you know, opportunities to learn about these things, to travel, to learn about all these cultures to, you know, so, so I think what, what, what is the next thing I want to learn? I think on a personal level for like my personal development would be that. So I think that, you know, in heading in that direction and heading in the direction that I want to go in, you know, for my, you know, professional career as well, are probably the, you know, getting to find what I would like to learn as the next step. Yeah,
0: I I, I'll be in touch and I'll be Sounds getting good. lots of Hail Marys
1: that Perfect. it all works
0: out. I and, appreciate uh, it.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Spring. Okay. I appreciate it. Thank Have you good night.
0: so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's Bye. my pleasure. Bye-bye. <laughs> You'll be happy to hear that Jad is now a plastic and reconstructive surgery resident at McGill University. He made it! Thanks for listening and remember, everybody has their own path to follow and sometimes not getting into med school is a blessing. You'll hear about that in my next podcast. The original music for this episode was composed and performed by my former students. Ashley Rivera, Mila Carlos, and Chloe Sue. I hope you subscribe to this podcast series and leave your comments. If you're curious, you can watch a short video version of this episode on the Teaching the Teacher YouTube channel. Please follow us on Instagram at Teaching the Teacher or on Facebook too. Share, subscribe, send questions, leave comments. Thank you in advance for your support. Many thanks to Ken Yu and Maeve and Una Devitt-Tremblay for helping get this podcast off the ground. Post-production editing support was generously provided by Cameron Bryson, Pierre Tremblay, and Joseph Devitt-Tremblay. And remember, stay in touch with your teachers. You can be sure they haven't forgotten about you.